Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, today I am so thrilled and honored to introduce Dr. Kenneth Meyer. He is globally renowned lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender or LGBT health researcher. He is a founder, medical research director, and co-chair of the Fenway Institute. The Fenway Institute is a world leader in LGBT healthcare research and advocacy. He is also a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, professor in the Department of Global Health and Population at Harvard School of Public Health, a whole bunch of other uh, affiliations that will be linked on the bio. And he's also editor-in-chief of the Journal of the International AIDS Society, which is one of the top HIV journals in the world. I am so honored that you made the time in your busy schedule to come on the podcast today. Well, it's nice to be here with you, Carmen. Carmen, you do wonderful work as well, so it's, it's all good. Thank you. Um, so usually if I've met somebody, I talk about our origin story. I actually knew of you, obviously, from a long time ago with your research. And I think the first time I actually spoke to you was at one of the International AIDS Society conferences and you were super kind. And I think I really met you for the kind of first conversation in D.C. last year, I think. It was a year and a half ago with Laurent, and it was these HVTN meetings. So that was really fun. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, and I've been aware of your work for so long, and we've been on a number of uh, you know different conference calls and, and things. So it's sort of you feel like you know somebody. It's like this sort of kind of evolving peer group. Uh, you know, um, yeah. Especially on Zoom now, it feels like there's so many people from around the world. It's it's kind of, that's the one good thing I think about Zoom. But um, anyway, so I, I introduced you, but I wonder if, you know, what is your elevator speech when somebody, say post-COVID when we're all vaccinated and we're chatting in elevators again, and someone just asks you, what do you do? What do you say? I'm a physician trained in infectious disease research uh, with enough training in epidemiology to be dangerous, with an interest in um, social behavioral science and social determinants of health. So I focus a lot on um, clinical epidemiology, looking at large databases and clinical trials, particularly around HIV and SCI prevention research. So that's a lot. And are you in Long, Boston? Big elevator. Long <laughs> Yeah, uh, I I often like ride in elevators longer than I need to if I'm engaged in a good discussion. Are you in Boston right now? I am. Okay. I'm home. I love your library. Um, Mine is actually a fake library. So, you know, I love your library. What I want to know is if I show up right now to your house, 
with my time machine and my time machine has space for physically distancing. And I say, take me back to the time and place where you thought, okay, I'm going to be doing HIV and LGBT research. Where do we go in the time machine? Uh, you have to go back to a few days before the first uh, description of what became known as the epidemic in morbidity and mortality weekly reports. I wasn't pre-med uh, when I was growing up and going to college. Decided to go to medical school at the end of my university uh, education, the University of Pennsylvania. I had interest in mind-body issues and veered from psychology to deciding to become a psychiatrist. But I was also in the process of coming out and when I had contact with a lot of psychiatrists in the mid to late 70s during my medical training, I said, well, Freudian theory is really interesting intellectually, but I don't know if I really like a lot of this and they're very judgmental and they're not very uh, sympathetic. Um, <laughs> and I also started becoming much more interested in social medicine. I was also kind of political activist. And I thought, well, you know, I'll just, I won't make a firm decision. You know, maybe I'll work overseas. Maybe I'll work um, with the urban poor. Uh, and th then in my residency, I got more and more interested in infectious disease research. Some of my mentors were people who were very socially aware people like one of them is well known to many people in the AIDS field Jerry Friedland who's at Yale uh, University. So I decided to go into infectious disease and uh, my research project that I decided on in 1980 was uh, about antibiotic resistance why the bugs were smarter than we we are. So I thought it's a good opportunity to get some lab training even if I didn't do it for the rest of my life and I'm starting in the lab and this pandemic hits and I'd been volunteering at, at Fenway Health uh, wanting to do some community work. And I was in the strange position of being a gay man working at a Harvard research lab, seeing people who had came in for sexually transmitted infections at the beginning of what unfolded as a pandemic. So I didn't really decide to become an AIDS doctor. It sort of felt more like Jonah and the whale and the whale found me. Wow, so you were, in um, Philly, or you were in you were in Boston at the time. Is I was in like... Boston by then. Yeah, okay. I came to I came to Boston to do my internship and residency, and stayed on to do my fellowship in a Harvard Medical System. So, wow. So for the listeners, because we have listeners across the world, all knowing about all different kinds of things, who might not know about HIV, but 1981 is right at the beginning of the pandemic. That's when it was first quote discovered. Right. So right. you've been. You've been in this, how many years is that? 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's, that's I, amazing. I was 10 years old at the time. <laughs> I started um, volunteering in my undergrad uh, in 1994 on a, what was then called the AIDS floor of a hospital, you know, and that's actually what started me being interested in stigma and HIV work was from, from back then. So I'm coming up nowhere close to you, but I'm coming up to a lot of years thinking about, about this. And I guess my first question to you with regards to stigma is from your wealth of experience, why should we still be thinking and caring about stigma? And, and you you deal with many different kinds of stigma, LGBT stigma, HIV stigma, among other intersecting stigmas. Why in 2021 should this still be a priority or should be something we're, we're still working on? 
Well, it's pretty foundational for a lot of things that happen in people's lives. So, so I think, you know, if we just take uh, gay men as one case study, but I think you, you can go to other, other populations as well. You know, you grew up in a non-affirming home or you grew up where you feel like you have to conceal part of your identity because the family doesn't really affirm who you are. That has all kinds of downstream bad health outcomes. Uh, it can certainly easily, people could understand how it leads to depression. And to avoid depression, one may self-medicate, which can lead to substance use, can lead to so, low self-esteem, which allows people to get into relationships where their power dynamics, where they're not making decisions that are very healthy for them. So you can see how this sets up a vicious, vicious cycle. Then one group of individuals where done a fair amount of work over the years uh, and we have mutual friends like Leron Nelson certainly if you think of black men who have sex with men in the United States growing up as a black person in the U.S. with so much external uh, stigma from the dominant society I'm in the process of reading Isabel Wilkerson's book Cast which is really interesting a very powerful book and you know it just reminds one of what it must feel like to grow up non-affirmed because of your race, but you're also within your birth family um, not being affirmed because of your uh, sexual orientation, it's a affront to your the faith community that you're growing up in. So, so there's a lot of ways in which people feel that they have to conceal their identities, where they don't aren't happy about their identities, and that kind of ego-dystonic kind of environment certainly leads to uh, this cascade of adverse health, health outcomes. But, you know, HIV stigma is certainly uh, uh, pervasive in other populations around the world, certainly uh, in settings of generalized epidemic, you know, for young women in Africa, uh, the presumption that you're uh, may be associated with being, quote, promiscuous, unquote, it may, it may uh, lead to the anxiety that one may not be able to find a suitable spouse, be able to access a suitable dowry in the family. So, so it has multiple societal um, reverberations, a really very profound part of uh, why we have a global AIDS epidemic. I mean, you've definitely convinced me of why we need to be still caring about this. And you did mention what it looks like actually really well from the case of somebody who might be in a family that maybe doesn't accept them for being gay and how that has all these ripple effects or a woman who maybe learned she's HIV positive and that has all these social implications. What do you think is the most important, one of the most important ways that stigma still contributes to HIV? Is it the, the stigma in healthcare? Do you, do you feel like it is still stigma in society and families? In 2021, is it still the same type of stigma or, or do you see things changing in any way? You know, that's a very hard question to answer because I think it's sort of all of the above and it's variable in different settings. So clearly, as we know, it's the fact that there's marriage equality in so many parts of the world, uh, certainly there's an increased societal acceptance of same-sex relationships, but that's not universal. And similarly, healthcare providers, uh, you alluded to, to, you know, uh, they're definitely part of the problem. And some of the work we do at Fenway is uh, provider training and uh, trying to create an environment of uh, provision of culturally 
uh, competent uh, uh, care. And you know, some providers, it's not as much of an issue. In other cases, it can be a major barrier. And then you also have this whole issue of internalized stigma, that even if the environment has changed, if an individual's perception of what they can anticipate in the environment, if they anticipate a problem, anticipate not being respected or receiving care in an unsupportive way or uh, that they can't trust providers, that can create perverse disincentives not to engage in care as well. So I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all situation at this point. Yeah, that's. thank you for giving such a good example of the different dimensions of stigma that impact people. One other thing that we like to focus on in this podcast is solutions. And you alluded to work you're doing at Fenway. So what have been some strategies that have been effective at creating solutions? So reducing stigma, improving affirmative care at Fenway. What what have you found that you've enjoyed doing, that you've been successful at doing? Sure. Well, Fenway is a federally qualified community health center, which is kind of a term of art in the United States because we have such a crazy patchwork healthcare system. But these are clinics that have to conform to certain federal mandates, but they're, they have to have a neighborhood community board, and then they reflect the demographics of the community they serve. And the Fenway community is pretty heterogeneous. So Fenway is not a LGBT clinic per se, uh, though, because the neighborhood always had a large number of sexual gender minority people, that does constitute about half of the patients who access care at Fenway, but it's grown over the years. It's in several locations in inner city Boston, but but, um, provides primary care for about 35,000 people. Um, But the part of Fenway where I I spend most of my time and responsibility is the Fenway Institute, which is essentially uh, the part of the health center that's focused on research, education, and policy dissemination. So we have about 20 people who are faculty, most of whom have appointments and spend a good chunk of their time in other uh, institutions in the Boston area, but do a lot of their research at Fenway or um, uh, some of their programs. And what one big part of the Institute is our education center, which has been fortunate to get some federal grants to do provider training. So what I love about Fenway, I see it as a, sort of a, um, a laboratory in the sense that uh, a lot of the programs that were sort of developed empirically by providers, like how do you create a warm and welcoming environment within the health center? Once we feel like we understand what the model is and what seems to be working, then the question is, how do you disseminate that? And a colleague spends all his time, Alice Carillion, directing her ed center, and by webinars, by, you know, before the pandemic, in-person conferences and hands Oh, don't we miss those? Yeah. <laughs> so, so just having these programs, you know, and, and doing a lot of what's popularly referred to now as academic detailing, meaning, you know, having trainers go t- to clinical settings because providers have to eat lunch. It used to be that pharma used to do that and mm. you know, bring their bring their wares and, and, and buy people lunch. And so now the these federal grants will buy people lunch so they can get trained on cultural competence, which really has a couple of elements. Part of it is knowledge that there's this emerging sort of um, discipline, clinical discipline of sexual and gender minority health, which is a variety of different things. So it's not like every sexual gender minority person has the same health needs, but they do have some specifics of their health care that providers need to understand. You know, what are the right hormones uh, that are gender affirming for a transgender woman who wants to be on medication? You know, what screening test should you be doing for somebody who's sexually active so that you're comfortable getting rectal swabs? So there's a technical piece of the training uh, for the person 
efficiency, but a lot of it is also attitudinal. And, and the frame that we use in a lot of the training is that we think that most people go into caring professions because they want to take care of people. They want to do good by their fellow humans. So we try to approach this from a standpoint of technical competence and cultural humility and try to make the mm -hmm. rise aware that by definition, if you don't understand these things, you're going to be doing a crappy job of taking care of people. And if you create an environment where people are not comfortable disclosing all of their behaviors, all of, uh, what's going on in their lives, um, you're going to just miss all kinds of health issues that you could be an ally uh, for these individuals. So trying to appeal to people's professional sense that they could really be doing a better job and getting them to that position of we're not telling you you're a bad person you're homophobic or we're not saying your religious beliefs are not right we're saying you decide to go into this clinical profession and we're here to help you do a better job so that you have better clinical outcomes for your patients i love that and it's something um cultural humility i just finished working on this book i still now i got all the feedback and i need to do all the edits but one chapter is is on cultural humility and i co-wrote chapters with people from different community research projects and one was with my colleague dr Kenneth liz who's uh, an indigenous um, scholar and practitioner and she brought up that the power of uh cultural humility so when i was reading about it a lot of it's you know i, I I appreciated about it was about us learning about our own histories as well as other people's histories. So if we learn about histories of mistreatment of LGBT people in the healthcare system, you know, or of African-American folks in society and healthcare, then we can start maybe understanding medical mistrust and why people don't want to come into care. I really uh, appreciate that you bring both of those lenses into your trainings. Yeah, I know we're in the middle of a trial now just to show that it actually has clinical benefit, which is it's been a challenging study to do, but actually like um, training um, a, a half a dozen community health centers doing sort of more intensive training and then having another half dozen who are sort of the control community health centers and trying to look at some of what they document in their electronic medical records about number of tests performed for various clinical indications and how well do they even just document. You know, there are now requirements in the U.S. about documentation of sexual orientation and gender identity, but there's still a lot of clinical places that still don't um, document. You know, their, their argument is not really important data to have. And we're saying, you know, you'd want to know the patient's weight you'd want to, you know, there's certain mm -hmm. sort of fundamental things. This is a big part of somebody's life, you know, so you definitely would like to know it. That's great that you're doing that. And I, I think a lot of times what I hear sometimes from social workers or from other folks are, oh, well, the person's going to feel uncomfortable if you ask them. And, I was, and I'm always like, no, I appreciate being asked rather than having to volunteer that information and surprise the person, you know, when they're making assumptions about, you know, what gender is my partner, for instance. We actually have a paper on that. It's called Do Ask, Do Tell. My colleague uh, from Cahill <laughs> led the analysis. We actually did a survey in four community health centers in the U.S. Two had a focus on LGBT health and two not at all. Um, one of them uh, was in um, South Carolina and served an area uh, that was particularly large number of African-American individuals and fairly poor community. 
And we were able to show that, I mean, it was a huge number, several thousand people responded to this survey. And we found that heterosexual, people identified as heterosexual were just, just like to say, yeah, I think this is part of my health care for the provider to be asking about my sexual orientation, gender identity, as sexual and gender minority people were. So, so we think that's a non-issue that it's the, um, again, uh, sort of interjection of uh, providers' own intrinsic biases or their own anxieties into a situation where there's not uh, data to say that. You know, uh, obviously there's some people who may be flummoxed by that, but in general, I think it's a non-issue. Yeah, I'm going to find that article and then include it in my syllabus. <laughs> I'll try to remember to send it to you. It's, it's, it's in plus, it was in plus one about three or four years ago. Yeah, totally get it. Because I think a lot of times it's about our own comfort talking about sexuality and sex rather than the other person. <laughs> so we need to get rid of stigma around sex. I want to know for the last sort of stigma related question, how can listeners be part of creating a better world, like a, a world with less stigma? What do you want people to do that are listening to this? They might be walking their dog or taking the bus or driving in the car, working out. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, I do think we all have a role to play. I think it's, you know, I, th I think we just have to interrogate what are the situations we're in and how are we acting and what are the assumptions we're making and how we can do a better job of being more um, sensitive and proactive, you know, particularly for people who are um, racial, ethnic, uh, minority communities where where it's going to oftentimes be pretty clear that there's a difference and that there's this different societal casts that may be implicit is sort of, you know, trying to anticipate and put oneself in the other person's shoes when not, when not certain uh, ask, but certainly in other settings uh, to be as mindful as possible. Certainly there, there are group dynamics where, where we can create microaggressions if we're not really paying a lot of attention and, and that certainly can help um, to reduce stigmas to avoid those so certainly in a setting where you know there are four or five people um, you know working on a project together I mean I'm very typical I'm on a zoom call these days you know but it may be in a meeting and there might be only one person of color in the room and you know being attentive to are they being cut off in the conversation are they being addressed uh, as a full partner and if the person who is monitoring that has some power in the situation it's not the goal isn't to be heavy-handed or awkward uh but certainly being sensitive and being able to make sure that the dialogue is sufficiently inclusive and you know soliciting the opinions of, of the other uh, people in the conversation you know around lgbtq issues it's often much more subtle in many social settings because there may not be you know the other person may not be fully aware. Uh, there's always the, con the concerns about sexualizing conversations and, and in various settings where it may not be appropriate. So there's not like a single prescriptive thing, but I think this idea of self-monitoring and kind of thinking about the context and thinking about, you know, we all have all kinds of layers of insecurity, but, you know, I sometimes step back and say, you know, most of the time people aren't seeing me as, you know, a child of German Jewish refugees or gay men. They're seeing this older white guy and, uh, you know, in the society, that's there's certain power dynamics that I have and there's certain ways that I can interact with people that may make them more comfortable and feel as respected parts of the dialogue or the group process. And I think that's a big thing that we we have a lot of controllers because some of the other things we have, you know, less agency, you know, those require major structural interventions like, you know, getting rid of Trump, you know, that was a big structural intervention. <laughs> Yay, congrats. 
<laughs> the work begins. And I think that's really important what you said about recognizing whose voices are heard, maybe in whose voices are less heard, and then trying to, to navigate and negotiate that space. I've been talking a lot in my class and in another podcast about epistemic injustice and whose knowledge is valued and recognized more than, than others and how that's often racialized and gendered as well. So that's really, I think just being aware of who we're listening to and who we're not listening to or who's just not saying anything in the room. You know, it's really interesting and important. Is there anything else before I get to the wild cards you want the listeners to know about stigma or your work? Great conversation. If people are interested in uh, what the Fenway Institute does, uh, we do have a website and it's just the Fenway Institute, no punctuation.org. I'll link it in the bio to this podcast. Great. So you have such amazing resources and all the studies in all the cool flyers. I'm like, so I love your website. It's amazing. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's so much. There's a wealth of, of knowledge and information on the on the website. And I'll also link them to your your research as well. Okay, are you ready for wild card questions where they can get to know the real you? Okay. <laughs> okay. These aren't going to be stigmatizing. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're going to be fun. Um, okay. The first wild card question is: What are you watching on Netflix? Oh, okay. I watched The Crown. I could, you know, not stop watching The Crown. I love you know, the whole, whole thing. Somebody uh, on the podcast also said The Crown. I, I'm learning what's hot by talking to podcast guests. I have not watched it. Oh, yeah, no, it's great. I, some people say it trivializes history, and I, I take that point. But the acting is good, and that's good, and it's great. And Schitt's Creek was really, was a, I was so sorry when that was over, but that was so ridiculous. Can I tell you, Schitt's Creek is like my favorite. Every single episode, I shout out Dan Levy, please be a podcast guest. Dan Levy, <laughs> it's been on almost every episode, Dan. We love you. Come on. Chits Creek is the best. And I, I was also so sad when it was over. I was like, what am I going to do now? <laughs> this was great. <laughs> See, if I, if I had a podcast, I would first think about getting Catherine O'Hara on. But <gasps> Catherine O'Hara? You are 100% invited and welcome as well. She was unbelievable in that. So and good. great ensemble. It was just, just, especially, you know, with the pandemic, it was like the perfect escape because it was just, uh, you, see, you're too young, but there was the Beverly Hillbillies and there was some aspect of this that reminded me of, of that in some, some strange way. <laughs> I'm from small town Ontario and there was a, like a lot of motels like that around. Oh, wow. So it rang true. Um, and barn parties. And, you know, I was like, oh, this is not, I mean, maybe the situation of that specific family was different, but there was a lot of things that I, I saw that I recognized. My <laughs> keeps. Huh. I don't know about that. I left a while ago, but, you know, it's nice to visit, but not necessarily live in tiny places. But my parents still live in a tiny place and I visit them. So, you know, there's a lot of peace peace to be found there okay my next wild card is you can go for dinner imagine there's no covid restrictions we all have vaccines anywhere in the world with anybody you want for dinner living or dead where do you go and who do you take oh that's such an interesting question uh 
if we hit it off, which is a big if, I think Gertrude Stein uh, in Paris in like 1930 would be kind of fascinating. So that would be sort of, that would come to mind, I think. And what, what specifically made you choose her? Because um, she was so connected to so many different people and she thought very differently about the world than a lot of different people. So I just, you know, you know, so she kind of like the whole transition of, of the world, you know, post World War One and leading up to World War Two, so the advent of the, the modern era, I think that um, she would have been fascinating. I mean, there's there so many people actually. I mean, you know, I just um, one COVID response has been finally talked to some friends into doing a book club, and a couple friends have book clubs, but they're more fiction, and I'm not a big fiction reader. I'm more historical nonfiction. So uh, for this book club, we read um, a book called The Accidental President. And it was about, it starts with sort of the death of Roosevelt and the five months leading from Roosevelt's death to Truman and the atomic uh, bombs on um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it's just such a tumultuous time. So certainly, uh, um, certainly having dinner with somebody like Roosevelt or somebody like Truman and trying to understand what they understood, what they were thinking, why they made some of the decisions they did would be would also would be fascinating. Certainly they set the stage for sort of the world we're living in now. I love that you're going back in history. That's amazing. I actually started a, a nonfiction uh, book club, a, a global women's book club. I went to this oh. talk with Pulitzer, Pulitzer funded writers, Sonia, Shaw and Seema Yasmin. And I was so impressed that I decided right then and there to start a book club of women science writers. <laughs> so we read the, uh, pan- was it Pandemic by Sonia Shaw and then the impatient Do- uh, Dr. Long, I'm sure I'm saying his name wrong, Joep Long, and then- Oh, you, you longer. Longer, yeah. So that book was great too. So we're doing these um, sort of women writing science books, and it's really fun. We have people from South Africa, Ireland, the U.S., Canada. Have you ever read *The Coming Plague*? No. Oh, it's a fantastic book, especially now. Laurie Garrett, she was a reporter, I think, for New York Newsday. I think she also read for the Times, and she's kind of a, a big pundit in the U.S. now because The Coming Plague was written in 1994. It was She was initially an AIDS reporter. Uh, I mean, she covered a lot of the early days of the epidemic and then took a sabbatical with the Council on Foreign Relations and started thinking about, like, how do you prepare for pandemics and the fact that we are encroaching more on the um, on the natural universe and more remote parts of the world that we've been encountering more um, different pathogens, uh, particularly viruses that were adapted in animals and then could transition to humans and cause bad plagues and because of global travel. So it's a very, it's a very um, prescient book and it sort of it actually ends with all kinds of recommendations about what you could do to avoid uh, the next plague, you know, <laughs> which were enacted. But uh, I, I even felt the same about Sonia Shaw as it was just a few years ago. The, a pandemic's coming. This is what we can do. And I'm like, oh, but it's funny you mentioned Lori Garrett because a mutual friend of ours, Amaya Perez Brumer, messaged me this morning with a photo of the book she just got from Laurie Garrett, a new book. Oh, interesting. Something like the end of the end of global health. Interesting. Yeah. And and I said to because of my uh, the betrayal of trust, the collapse of global public health by Laurie Garrett. And so I said, we might read that in the book club just so Amaya will be able to come because (laughs) 
<laughs> it's hard for everybody to, to read books, although I, I'm really trying to do that every day. Great. I'm, now I've got a few more books that I want to check out from you. Okay. So the last question for the whole podcast is, has there ever, I mean, I'm sure you've had so many pieces of wisdom that have stayed with you, but is there any piece of wisdom or quote or advice that you found helpful in your life that you want to share with the listeners? Hmm. It's, a, it's an interesting question. I actually think it's sort of advice I ended up giving myself and was supposed to, you know, <laughs> which was sort of follow your curiosity. Because I was thinking a lot of people are actually saying you're getting, you're being too diffuse and you're kind of, you know, you need to narrow your focus uh, when I was younger. And I think uh, having had a lot of different experiences and um, um, studying in a couple of different disciplines was probably very helpful in the long run, you know, but there's always this pressure to kind of narrow things and i think sometimes people do that too early to their to their detriment so that would be my advice i love that follow you said follow your curiosity yeah this is really interesting because i i had a few mentorship meetings last summer because i was curious about exploring a new area of research I talked to three people and they each said that exact thing. And there are people I really respect. They said, you should be liberated to explore what you're interested in. You should be, or I live my life trying to be more unleashed every day. And I really like that. Follow your curiosity or someone said, I follow my nose and what I'm interested in, you know, and then it hasn't really led me wrong. And I, I think that's so inspiring and also just very it feels very liberating to hear that that from somebody you know you're you're super successful maybe in part because you're you're so curious and you're so open right to changing and continuing to learn yeah it can be you know it can be challenging and it's you know <laughs> say not for the faint of heart but i think that's true of a research career in general you know because there's can be capricious you know but but i think they're also the premise is that one needs to keep learning and uh, growing. So I think that's always a really wonderful uh, thing to be able to do in one's life. Thank you. So listeners, follow your curiosity. That's so great. Thank you so much. I can't even imagine how busy you are. And I'm so grateful you took the time to come on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you. It was a pleasure. It was, really, it was fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carmen. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. Mm-hmm.